0: Welcome to another version of The Edge, and today I'm excited. We have Jeremiah Ginn on, on our podcast today, and he is somebody who I've been following for a while. Uh, Jeremiah came out recently with a book on Sassy. Um, He's got a long, extensive career in IT as well as networking um, he's worked at uh, companies like AT and T. Uh, he's been part of the MEF forum, working on standardization for SASE. And I think you can probably claim you've probably seen the most uh, SD WAN deals uh, as anybody on the planet. Uh, and as well, a question I'm going to ask him at the end. And this was a curious thing I had. Uh, Jeremiah is looking at taking a vacation to the Aleutian Islands. I happen to live there in my youth, and I'm very curious as to why. So. Uh, Welcome, Jeremiah. Cheers. So let's get into it. I want to dive into SD-WAN, into SASE, and and some of these changes that are coming uh, for people out there in in the networking and security space. Um, So let's start with traditional WAN networking. From your perspective, what uh, what was the things kind of leading up to what we eventually uh, called SD-WAN? Sure, sure.
1: Um, So everybody knows that Andrew Lerner... Uh, coined the term sassy back in uh, 2019, and you know, you know, taking a step back, I don't, I don't know that, that we've got a solid recording on where SD WAN, you know, originally kicked off, but we were doing projects 2016, 2017, you know, pretty heavily, and before that, we had several products in the market trying to achieve the the goal that we eventually achieved with SD WAN. Um, moving into uh, Sassy, what it, what it really was, was an observation of the way that we uh, went to market. So we we essentially took uh, a combination of what we were doing with SD-WAN, which was, you know, fairly revolutionary in the market. And then we combined it with security the way that we had been teaching the market to do for probably 40 years at that point. And uh, so what Andrew uh, Overgardner did was he observed this behavior where we were making sure that we were packaging um, SD-WAN and, um, you know, network security or cybersecurity into the same opportunity and making sure that that was inherently secure?
0: Yeah, so uh, one of the things I, I, you know, the challenges that I had, I, I was one of these pioneers that uh, deployed SD-WAN at a very early stage and went through the all the, the battle wounds that you might expect. Um, the challenge for me was where to insert security. So, you know, I had Opportunities. Well, you know, I could put a firewall in between and do local breakout. I could send it back to a data center. I could send it to a regional data center, and then along, you know, in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, there's this concept around firewall as a service that came out. That eventually became one of those um, those mechanisms to insert security. Um, but these were all challenges, and and that uh, you know is one of these things that led to SASE. Because you had this dilemma you needed to solve um, with networking, and it was: do I prefer performance or do I prefer security? And uh, I think that's one of the things that kind of led, you know, Lerner and and a few others to this uh, this new Sassy model.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, uh, what what um, what we were looking for was how do we effectively secure this? And in the behavior of the market uh, when we rolled out SD WAN was. First of all, you know a, a major disillusionment when when the attempt was made. We what we saw was uh, the average large global enterprise company was taking three years to get ten sites installed up from an SD-WAN perspective. Um, and the reason for that was we were taking seasoned engineers that had uh, their bread and butter was uh, networking for 25, 30 years, and and that was all based off electrical engineering, computer systems engineering um uh, principles and methodologies and we would apply a protocol and then we would we would route traffic uh in and occasionally we would forward traffic but predominantly we would route traffic to its destination based on a existing protocol or a protocol we developed you know, mm-hmm. to be able to do that as efficiently as possible but but what we were um what we were failing to do is failing to, taking it to account for changes in the environment. So what would happen is if a circuit went down or a new circuit was installed or uh, some sort of topology changed, the network would fall on its face because we were prescriptive. We would uh, configure things prescriptive and the problem with that was uh, that meant uh, that we had full control over it, which well, back then I was doing that. And I said, uh, my network's gonna be perfect. So I would design a perfect network, implement a perfect network, and start to operate a productive network. But day one, uh, something would change. And so I had to go around and adjust or tune my policy-based routing or my prescriptive routing that I put in place. And it wasn't dynamic. So it would, it would, it would on a regular basis fail because it did not take into account any sort of dynamic uh changes in the environment. And our quality mechanisms were, you know, layer two or layer three quality mechanisms were uh, extremely primitive, right? So all we're doing is, you know, allocating uh, and trying to carve out uh, some sort of space for performance. And, you know, it was continually falling flat on its face. But, um, you know, SD-WAN, you know, uh, and I I look at it this way. I've studied 77 different SD-WAN branded solutions in the market. Uh, you know, I've helped implement probably 17 at this point. Um, you know, 17 different branded solutions. And you know, if you look at that today, Cisco's probably got three branded solutions: the Meraki, the Viptela, and and the what we call the C Edge, which you know the converged uh, ISR code and Viptela code. But so, uh, and then you'll see some of the brands in the market now have two because of the consolidation. But really, what was happening was uh, an engineer looked at that and they said. This behavior doesn't make sense to me. Uh, It's not working. It's not. It's not working correctly. I can't do this. So they were backing off and trying to get to some sort of awareness. And and typically, I could take a high school student and teach them SD WAN in one or two weeks. And if I took a thirty-year IT veteran and tried to teach them SD WAN, they would usually curse me out and not talk to me for six months. And then they would call back later apologize, and then asked to be taught after six months. Did you experience the same thing?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I've told stories on this show where um, I had a seasoned network engineer, CCIE level, you know, dude's got tons and tons of experience, is just amazing, intelligent person, and um, throwing him into it, and then uh, taking, it, to your point, two people, who didn't have a lot of experience? One was a uh, ex-service member. Another person was a cashier at Costco. Uh, trained them in a matter of months, and they were doing SD-WAN deployments uh, globally. Uh, and uh, got into a point where there was a there was a conflict or a conversation around uh, deployment. And the the seasoned engineer was on the line, and he's like, "Hey, we need to do this." And they're like, "No, if you do that, it's you know we're going to lose connectivity here." And uh sure enough, uh they were right, he was wrong. And just exactly to what you said, uh, you know, the engineer was like, hey, come back and and the you know, the the engineers with only just a few few months of experience were, were teaching the the CCIE level guy. So uh yeah, exactly.
2: I mean, I went through a very similar phase. I mean, I I was uh looking after a global MPLS network and Obviously, that was a managed network and there were reasons why it was managed because it was complicated and we, we didn't have enough resources to have a CCIE on on, on hand, so we, we outsourced. And I remember talking about wanting to kind of insource and look after SD-WAN and spending a lot of time actually trying to convince the management team that we could manage that because it was simpler. But it was going through that kind of discussion point of, you 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 wanted to outsource it before you had someone managing it, and this is supposedly you're saying it's faster and cheaper, but it's going to be less complicated. And they, they in fact we actually ended up with a managed service, primarily because nobody believed we, we would have the skills to do it. And over time, we kind of proved out that we did have the skills to do it. So I think IT people are generally nervous and and about new technology, and we're a little bit reluctant to change. But actually, when I think when you Open the box and have a look inside and you realize it's actually going to help you, then then people tend to get on board. I think everyone's just different. Um, but I'll hand back to you, John. Sorry.
0: Yeah, so one of the so yeah, on that on that point, no, no,
2: no, worries <laughs> worst.
0: <laughs> hey, on that point, uh, how do we convince engineers, you know, that have years and years of experience, um, and they're they're used to you know how things have operated in the past. And now they're confronted with, uh, you know, senior leadership saying, hey, economic reasons or consolidation or, you know, we want to deploy these applications or becoming, you know, more cloud first. Um, They're asking them, hey, we need to get into this SASE game. How do we work with these more traditional seasoned engineers and get them on board with with SASE and and SSE? Sure,
1: sure. Well, that's a challenge. So uh, my technical reviewer called me out on, on something he thought was uh inaccuracy. Um and it was around disaggregation of control plane and data plane. So when uh you know when I look at 70% of the players out of that 77 uh that I studied, um, 70% of those were um were uh, kind of more of an OpenStack based approach right the easiest way to understand it is to kind of start studying openstack and look at the way it behaves and the behavior was very similar right and the code was based very similar but when i said the key to sd wan was really the disaggregation in uh, control plane he said well well cisco right here in the book you know 20 years ago was showing uh protocols that were uh, disaggregated data plane and control plane and i said yes it's true um, but this is this is kind of different. It's, it's almost like a, a additional dimension to it because now what we're doing instead of routing, so we're not trying to do things on a, uh, you know, a common protocol, a way of doing things. What we're trying to do is we're trying to uh, leverage policy. And so we use the deep packet inspection to be able to match to an application, right? So the you know, key is we're talking layer seven instead of layer two and three. Uh, and then once we do that, we're going to match that to a policy for the purpose of securely forwarding that traffic. So our goal is not to route it. If we route, we failed. R- routing is a failure. When we drop to the underlay, that's that's kind of a last resort. If we're using SD WAN properly, what we're doing is we're securely forwarding traffic. And it could be across all available paths or or uh path, you know, whatever chosen path based on policy, you know, depending on the vendor and and the approach, the design approach. But essentially what we're doing is we're securely forwarding traffic. Um, and what we've done is we've done something that feels like a three-dimensional uh disaggregation of the data plane and control plane, because what we're gonna do is whereas we're gonna forward that the for that traffic uh and then at some point it's going to exit our 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 forwarding process which is the SD-WAN secret sauce and then it's going to you know get handed off to the land
0: segment on the other end uh and then it's going to be ordinary traffic at that point does it does that make sense yeah it makes sense and I I what I took away from that and, and what I liked about it was when you said hey if we're routing we're failing failing because dang that's so true It's really about applications, and and that layer seven perspective is, I think, the piece that's missing for a lot of the the engineers out there. With you know, that lot of tenure, a lot of experience, Um, and they grew up, you know, routing packets, looking at uh, layer three addresses, and so on and so forth. I think moving up to that level of application, uh, talking about outcomes and and how to secure traffic, is is a critical piece. Um, One of the other things I I noticed uh, in your book, um, you discussed um several different roles and and how to kind of explain sassy to each or SD WAN SASE to each persona. Uh, and and when you're talking to a network engineer versus a uh, you know network manager or director of infrastructure versus C level person, these conversations are are different. Um, can you kind of walk me through each one of these personas and um how would you explain the benefits of a of a sassy uh, solution versus uh, you know a traditional approach?
1: I, you know, I, I think the key is uh, you know being able to be somewhat of a human API. And uh, so what you've got to be able to do is you've got to be able to talk to to each people based on their uh, their needs, their their urgency, you know, uh, what um, is affecting their life. For instance, uh, what we're seeing is a common trend now where CIOs are compensated based on a uh, UX uh, end user experience. Uh, some sort of scoring mechanisms applied to that and um it, it's all about you know can the employees do their job right and if they can't do their job is it it related is it limiting the employee from being able to be as productive as they can possibly be right or is it enabling you know and for years we've sold the idea that it. can be uh an aggressive enabler? of, you know, the employee to be able to, to increase productivity at a a abnormal rate, right? You know, abnormally successful rate. But um, so when I talk to the CIO, um, I'm cognizant that they've got a couple different things in mind. The first thing in mind is, is business value. They, they don't want to have operations personnel they're there to be uh, the proverbial Maytag repairman. You know, they're sitting there waiting for something to break. And and uh, and if everything's designed correctly, it's not going to break, right? So, it, you know, it's in essence, they feel like a uh, a sunk cost that uh, doesn't provide a return of value. So they want to take those dollars from the uh, keep the lights on approach and they want to apply those towards business value, which uh ends up in DevOps or or some sort of application business value, you know, process, um, you know, is where those dollars go. The CFO, um, you know, really they just heard SD and could save them 90% uh on what they've been paying for uh communications, right? You know, uh bandwidth circuits, you know, that sort of thing. And really where that came from is if you were to take uh, you know, a let's say a, a thousand site enterprise network, and you were to go from, uh, you know, MPLS uh, to SD WAN leveraging broadband, what you could get is, in essence, up to 10 times the actual bandwidth, um, although it affects reliability, but you could get up to 10 times the bandwidth um, and you could uh, reduce your, uh, your cost your three-year cost by 90% or more uh, going to SD-WAN. Now, what it fails to take into account is that the SD-WAN hardware, software, licensing, design, build, deploy process is more expensive than the routed process, right? And then the other thing it fails to take into account is uh, SLA and SLO, right? So if we look at SLA, uh, what we're looking at is everything we've done in the telecom industry has been focused on a five nines and trying to get to seven nines uh, of reliability, availability, right? And what a lot of the broadband uh, communications worldwide was built with about an 80, 85 to 87% uh, availability uh, mechanism, and it was done that way to make it cost effective, right? So, uh, that was how they were able to get the cost down is looking at you know something less than a ninety percent availability score as opposed to building based on five nines so they're able to eliminate a lot of redundancy and a lot of uh reliability and bring the cost down. So the way we start to bring reliability back from SD WAN and you know this is a, a CFO and a, a, a CIO discussion is we uh we, do, we go diverse on layer one. So we essentially say, okay, you want broadband well, let's add, um, you know, some sort of variation on layer one. So if broadband's is your primary because of bandwidth, you know, hey, maybe you're going to put in one gig at the site. Uh, let's go ahead and put in some sort of LTE or 5G um, for a diverse layer one. And then maybe let's put in, uh, if you've got a more rela- uh, higher availability requirement for a particular site, let's put in stated internet access as well. So I've got customers that have five different... Uh, Very layered one. So we've got MPLS brought back into production because of reliability, um, but it's maybe 10% of the total bandwidth. Then we've got, um, you know, dedicated internet access, which is a, uh, you know, uh, 95, 97% reliable product. And then you've got um, broadband uh, LTE and uh, believe it or not, they brought back VSAT. So, um, so everybody complains about the performance speed of VSAT but the reality is, uh, you know, uh, for a diverse layer one mechanism, you know, it's perfect, and some bandwidth is better than no bandwidth. So it comes back in, and SD-WAN makes it uh, perform better, right? So the the way it shares the traffic across all available paths, you know, makes it perform better. So, anyway, so that's the discussions, and then when we talk to network managers, it, it's really about, okay, uh, what's your job? Yeah, your job is to have a network that runs. Okay, well, let me show you application visibility based on the sticker sauce of the SD-WAN. Let me show the quality mechanisms. Let me show you um, how we can leverage multiple diverse layer one paths, right? Um, You know, and then uh, when we talk about the network engineer, really it's something has to happen to uh, cause them to choose on their own to relearn their, um, you know, their experience. Now I actually um reinvented myself in 2018, uh going from uh, uh network engineering, network architecture, uh, to uh to becoming more of an SD WAN subject matter expert. And since then I've I've done SD WAN, SASE, a, a ton of cloud infrastructure and um and, and a ton of cybersecurity. And so um uh dollar amount wise, you know, I've seen um you know dollar amounts in the uh the B, uh, the big B level, right? Uh, where I've been able to implement very complex networks and it's based on uh, making everything more simple. So we we template and we give the template to the network engineer. We show them how to replace prescriptive design with a template and they can test their heart out on, you know, five, uh, on average, five uh, different site types or use cases, right? And each one of those site types that we we test those and we validate those and we prove them in production and then all they've got to do is is copy and paste to uh to forward deploy uh to the other sites that they have but trying to go a site-by-site design they can never actually catch up due to the complexity so the key variable there is when we sell um when at ATT, when we sold a managed router we needed five points of data, like IP address, subnet mask, default gateway. You know, it may be something else, right? When we sold SD-WAN, we needed 1,604 data points minimum. That was our minimum data set. So we went from five to 1,604. That's the difference in complexity between routing and SD-WAN. And so we had to help the engineer understand, first of all, we're going a hop in the network Beyond where we normally go, so we're we're being uh, very relational with the uh, land segment, whatever the next layer three hop is on the land side of the network, right? And we're collecting BGP from that, um, you know, because what we're trying to do is we're trying to have an awareness of what's available, what resources are available at that particular location, and then we're uh, we're also uh, building these quality mechanisms and the other challenge for the network engineer is we're stripping out. QoS and COS on the WAN, converting the uh, wide area network to uh, to a network of stubs, and uh, that that hurts their feelings, right? Because they know how to do a great job, and they've got to be willing to kind of reinvent themselves. So those are the conversations that I have across the board.
2: I, I think for me, uh, looking back on on kind of my migration over to SD WAN, for for me it became attractive for a number of the reasons you've just said because you can plug in multiple different circuits of kind of different standards. But because you're looking at the applications, you can say these applications get priority, use all the mechanisms of a clever SD-WAN to make sure they are prioritized. And things like email can go over kind of the poorer circuit because if it takes a little bit longer, it doesn't really matter, it's not a big deal, but if it's voice or video, prioritize it. And when I sat down and started having my initial conversations and I'm like, okay, so I can get rid of my really expensive MPLS. I can put in five or six different circuits from a diverse number of vendors, but I can still get the same, if not better performance and more bandwidth. And for me, once I trialed that and tested it, I'm like, this is this is a no-brainer. Um, but but I want to pivot a little bit. Um, I want to talk a little bit about breaking down Sassy. Um, So kind of two questions, really. Um, What do you think the key elements of SASE are? And do you think Zero Trust plays a part in SASE?
1: Let me say something that's probably going to offend a lot of people. Uh, Zero Trust says, uh Zero Trust today, as it sits, is more of a marketing term (laughs) than than an actual successful practice. Right? So we sell ZTNA, Zero Trust Network Access, a replacement for remote access. And if you compare the vendor solutions, there's very little difference between what they were offering three years ago as a remote access solution. You know, they, they may have visibility or, or something that looks like a better looking client, or they might even be clientless, right? But the reality is, you know, there's not a whole lot of difference, um, you know, than what we've seen before. Um, now, uh, talking about Zscalers, ZPA. Zscaler ZPA when it came out was a legacy-free, you know, approach. That, but again, um, it um, it accomplished the goal. If we were all pure cloud, uh, ZPA would be the perfect client for everybody, right? It would be the the perfect solution to be able to provide a zero trust network access because really what it did is it eliminated remote access and it created a way of uh, creating uh, secure traffic forwarding. For specific applications based on the policy, so that was really great. But where what we're missing is is really the uh, the look and feel of .1x. So when we look at 802one x and we look at uh, the pain we went through in the market, you know, I don't I don't remember how long ago it was, you know, it was at least ten years ago when we were trying to roll out, you know, products like Cisco Identity Services Engine, you know, in its early stages, and we were doing little things like bricking switches. Right, we would brick the switch because it would be truly zero trust. Right. Um, and uh we you know, so if you applied it uh inappropriately, you would have to RMA that switch and send it back. You couldn't even, you know, break into it and fix it on on site because it was truly zero trust. So if you put that model in your head and you think about the pain that everybody went through trying to learn how to implement dot one X in its early days. That is really what we should be seeing from a zero-trust perspective, only like maybe a version 3.0 of it. And to get there, we needed a zero-trust framework, which uh, we we developed uh, with MEF, uh, the uh, W118 uh, zero-trust framework uh, standard, to be able to, to start on that. But the thing is, zero-trust... Sounds better as a framework, it makes more sense as a framework because it's a thing that we have to work to achieve. It's not something a product's going to do for you automatically, right? You know, the product can be capable, right? So ZTNA products can be capable, uh, but we're not going to get there unless we understand how everything integrates. So I want to focus on SASE for just a second. To me, um, when we talk about SASE versus SSE. Um, you know, to me, the, the biggest difference between SASE and SSE is SD-WAN, right? So uh, easy way for anybody at the executive level to understand the difference between the two is you take away SD-WAN from SASE and you end up with SSE, right? And so I believe that SSE and SASE are both trying to achieve uh, the same goal in very close to the same manner. So I want to tell you what the, what the goal, when we look at that, it it sassy and zero trust are two sides of the same coin you can't have one without the other right you have to have you have to have both right because zero trust needs to create a baseline that says we don't trust anything uh and then only trust things that are explicitly allowed by policy and then sassy's job is or sse's job is to effectively forward that traffic to where it needs to go with the right level of user experience, the right level of quality, the right level of performance, uh, right level of of latency. We, you know, all of our designs need to be latency centric based on the application goals, right? Uh, You know, the developer says, hey, I've got a goal of getting below five milliseconds. We're gonna probably tell them it's not gonna happen today. But, uh, But if they say, well, or it's it's life and death it's going to be a public safety use case i've got to get below 5 5 minutes okay well now we have to bring back in edge compute to be able to achieve that and the edge compute and other solution in the sasi uh slash zero trust framework has to be fully integrated so the way i look at doing that and this is just a model to understand it is it's going to be orchestrated it's got to be integrated and API is the quickest and easiest way to do that. Uh, I do have some friends doing uh some tickle work today, right? TCLTK, right? Um, but but really uh, what, what you're gonna see is orchestration, integration, you know, API being the quickest, easiest way to do that, and, and then logging. Everything has to be logging, right? We wanna send every bit of intelligence we can get on anything going on in the environment to the SIM. And by integrating via API all the products, now, um, you know, we're going to see in the next couple of years, some customers may have 100 Sassy products in production from three to five different companies, right? Uh, all the CIOs I talked to at the Fortune 500 level, they're saying that they're going to use on average three different branded uh, solutions in their SASE stack. And that's really a statement based on them understanding who's buying it. So I, I look at SASE as, Zero Trust, SD WAN, um, firewalls as a service, you know the the uh, secure web gateway and the Casb, right? So that's that's your basic five pillars. But the the average basic build is probably going to be seventeen services, you know, leveraging those five pillars, right? And that's going to be two to three vendors on average. Probably going to trend towards three to five vendors long term. And the average customer is going to have seventeen services in production. Uh, and we're going to see a future where there's 100 services in production. Now, let's pretend we have 17 right now just for the sake of discussion. All 17 of those services, they have to be based on zero trust. They have to be integrated uh, for secure traffic forwarding. They have to be integrated for awareness of what's going on. So product A and product B talking to each other you know, within the SaaS ecosystem allows us to have visibility to the SIM function to be able to be aware of something that product A picked up, that product B may not have picked up, but because the, the relationship between the two, we get a more comprehensive visibility to potential threats in the environment. Right. So if we take all this back to the basics, SASE and orchestrated, integrated, observed, you know, through uh, you know, logging and sim functionality, uh, comprehensive secure traffic forwarding service. Does
2: that make sense? Yeah. And I I think if I pull out one of the things that you said, which I see is is being critical for the future is integration. I mean, we've all worked in the industry long enough to know that any vendor doesn't necessarily want to be open and shake hands with another vendor, but it's in the customer's interest to be able to do that, right? Vendors want their product to be sticky. Customers want to be able to change whenever they want to change. So I think the future is definitely going to be a mix and match of of vendors. It always has been. And I, I think there is a push towards some consolidation. I think it makes everyone's life a bit easier with consolidation. But there, in, in people's minds, best of breed is still a thing. And if you've been doing a certain thing as a vendor for a long period of time, you're likely still going to be best of breed for a while before the others catch up so i think all vendors need to, to talk about some kind of integration and apis i think are, are kind of how we're going to do that um john anything you want to pull out
0: no i i think that uh, your breakdown there was is very interesting um i'm curious uh, you, you talked a lot about uh, multiple vendors integrations with APIs. Um there's another concept out there called unified SASE, uh, which is not really the you know sassy from a, a particular vendor that has a portfolio of services, but a, you know, this unified concept where you know all the services are, you know, evenly matched, uh, maybe some a little bit better than the others, but there's that tight integration. Um, do you see that marketplace uh, starting to orient toward that unified sassy model or do you think it's going to be portfolio or are we going to con- kind of continue this best of breed
1: yeah I, I think there's market demand for the for the unified multi-vendor approach uh I think it's complicated and therefore product management teams don't want to do it um yeah uh, their uh brand protection teams definitely don't want to do it uh but I see the strength um I, I see the strength in the market uh parallels kind of what Cisco has done in the past. So if you look at Cisco when they developed routers, they developed routers that had Cisco proprietary protocols, but they also had RFC compliant protocols, right? To where we could leverage um what the market wanted to consume for interoperation. And I see that uh <laughs> you know today I think a lot of people call it uh, a frenemy uh type of type of approach, but but I I see it um there's a book out there called the death of competition and um i i think that's that's something that needs to be forefront in our mind that we can uh achieve x financially has a single stack single um you know umbrella single brand single logo type approach and we can uh, achieve something something like a, a X times x Uh, You know, if we go with with something that's a cooperative development approach that allows us to be able to uh, interchange uh, functions within the industry, Uh, Mets has created a uh, LSO and LSO within it's got several different projects, and what it essentially allows is carriers that are competing against each other to provision services on competitive hardware. So essentially vendor A or or carrier A uh, can push deploy uh, out to the last mile on vendor B's network. And that interoperability, while um, feeling kind of awkward from a competitive approach, uh, actually enables a reduction, uh, a significant reduction in the number of days it takes to provision services, which ends up um, allowing vendor A that uh, develop the cooperative agreements and, and put more energy in the cooperative agreements to have a superior market uh, market competitive advantage, even though they're not getting every single dollar on that ticket that they sold. So they're getting... Um, you know, maybe they're getting 80, 90% of the dollars and then they're, they're turning around giving the remainder to their competitor. But what they got is they took a customer from 180 days average market provisioning down to maybe seven days uh, for market provisioning. And in um, that value to the customer, you know, resulted in, uh, you know, five, six months worth of revenue. So that approach uh, drives positive behavior, that cooperative um, you know, you know, competitive competition actually, you know, uh, you know, breeds positive results, but cooperative competition can can breed uh, a multiplying effect. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. And uh, we had a guest on uh, a few months ago, VJ Segar. Uh, he was a product manager at CloudGenix, um, and he he hit this kind of the same point uh, that you did. Uh, you know. Open uh, competition, uh, openness uh, it breeds innovation. It breeds better results for customers uh, and, and people t- using the technology versus this closed ecosystem that we've seen in the past, where you know one company dominated the space and innovation declined, competition declined, not so great for the for the customer.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I have to agree. But I've just looked at the clock, and then we we've got a little bit of time left, so I wanted to pivot to a. a to a question that I know our listeners are really going to want us to ask. And that's really about, you've obviously got a lot of uh, experience deploying these solutions. Uh, what have you learned? Like, what have you learned from from deploying SASE that's gone particularly badly to, to avoid? And and what do you think kind of makes a successful project?
1: The first construct that we've got to get everybody to understand is that we're going to be successful based on the policy we develop. To develop the policy, we have to have awareness. So we have to have open disclosure. Some of the early, uh, like uh, the t- 2018, I had 54 really rough SD-WAN deals, right? And it doesn't, it, it would have been regardless of the vendor. So it wasn't the 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 brand name's fault. Uh, it was a market misunderstanding when it come to SD-WAN. You know, they thought they were getting something that was a push deploy. Uh, because of zero uh zero touch provisioning and all this other stuff. But uh that doesn't mean it was a zero design uh deploy, right? We we had to be effective at designing if we wanted to reap the benefits of the zero touch deployment. Uh and we really didn't know as a market how to achieve that. So uh one of the first lessons we learned was that we needed to have all our cards on the table and uh that the customers that are deploying uh, these types of technologies, they're thinking WAN versus SD-WAN, it's just an improvement of the old thing. And the problem with that is everybody was fixated on layer two and layer three. And we come to the table, we start talking about layer seven and nobody had an accurate inventory of all their applications. Now this is really embarrassing. So what it did was it stifled communication uh, amongst the project team, right? So our customers, were actively telling us um this was all the information and they didn't really know Uh, They 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 were going off their experience but they didn't have any sort of accurate real-time uh application inventory mechanism to help them understand what was what was running where it was running and how it was running and so um what we found was that a better approach than Doing some sort of a prescriptive design would be to go in and do a very vanilla, very generic SD-WAN install in production for you know, at least three different site types. Um, you know, if uh you know our goal was always to try to get about 10 sites um that were varying uh use cases. And what we would do is we would strip out most of the uh the benefit of the SD-WAN and be able to allow it to basically forward traffic. Uh, generically, and we would study what was going on there because we would get a great application inventory from the application visibility uh, solution within the SD-WAN secret sauce. And uh, by doing a very generic config that, that just flowed open without any specifics, what we were able to do is leverage the vendor secret sauce and kind of see the behavior, right? But this required a very honest and open approach that was not common. So uh, we talked about RFPs earlier, and what would happen with customers is, in an RFP, they would tell you what they wanted you to know, but not necessarily what you needed to know for success. And and by success, I mean success in implementation. So and success in production, success in operation. So uh, what they would do is they tell you something to be able to get to a competitive position to understand the dollars and cents. But what they wouldn't tell you is what you really needed for success in, in day one or even in day two. Uh, and so what we had to do is we had to develop a mechanism and we just used the technology to be able to pay attention to that. But a couple of things we learned. Simple is better than complex uh, when dealing with new technology. Uh, templated designs uh, made us uh, uh, gave us the ability to scale that most of the network failures out there were, were prescriptive uh designs um that were a site-by-site basis so every customer we had that had a site-by-site config was failing right and and they didn't always understand where they were failing but if you if you studied the tickets that they were getting you could see the failures right and it's a limitation of the technology but it's also a limitation of what you feel like you have to be able to control so if you can trust the secret sauce which is the hardest thing in the world a trust the secret sauce built into the SD-WAN solution. You can uh, achieve uh, a multiplying effect versus being prescriptive on a site-by-site basis. And so, uh, we also created hierarchical templates. So, uh, from a least prescriptive to most prescriptive, and the most prescriptive only with uh, a very few sites, uh, but uh, least prescriptive, saying, you know, here's a global config for every site we're going to put in production. Grassy Wan, and I talk about this in the book. And, and so this is more detailed in the book, easier to understand probably than uh the amount of time we have in this podcast. But hierarchical design, uh kind of a reverse focus than what we've done in the past. Uh, no policy, uh, excuse me, no prescriptive based design. You know, allow the policy to be a minimum viable product. Each policy is light as you can possibly make it. Um, open communication. You need a way of understanding everything that's in the environment. And you can learn that from the routing protocols. You can learn that from uh, by uh, being able to do deep packet and inspection and be able to see what applications run across the network, but you can't inherently know. Okay, So those are a few of the lessons we learned early on.
2: OK, so I think we've almost come to the end of our, our episode. Um, John, I know there was a specific question you wanted to add. You mentioned it at the start. Um, so we may have to skip asking you about food, but John, go for your question.
0: You never know. Maybe the two of them come together. So um, I noticed on a LinkedIn post, you're, you're taking a, a trip to the Aleutian Islands. And uh, as somebody who lived there two years of my life, I, uh, the reasons I was there was my father was in the military and stationed on Adak Island. Um, but I'm curious, why Why the Aleutians?
1: Uh, okay, so... Um what i do with every one of my kids uh when they turn turn 18 and we we should develop some sort of a branding for this but i just call it their 18 year old trip and so every one of my kids when they turn 18 uh, i take them on a trip just me and them right and and so we've done a variety of different things um you know variety of different interesting things so one of my sons because of uh, his work and and uh education everything that he wasn't able to go on his 18 year old trip you know, what he wanted to. And he, he's kind of kept putting put it off. And so, uh, you know, I've been poking him and prodding him. And they're like, what do you want to do? And he's like, uh, I want to go to Alaska, right? And and I want to go, you know, go experience Alaska. And I have an aunt that did 40 years in Inuit, uh, you know, uh, Alaska Native children's homes uh, up in Alaska. And then I have my wife's grandfather, uh, did 40 years of commercial fishing up in Alaska and uh, served in World War II um uh up in the Aleutians. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna go see where uh where he served and and as much as what whatever's still there as possible and kind of see uh how my uh wife's um mother uh what her experience was when she was born in alaska before it became a state and um you know the the places where they lived and the place where my aunt served in the children's home so so it's kind of a uh family adventure a uh just a father-son bonding thing and and what we want to do is we want to go as far out uh in the Aleutians as still in the united states and you know kind of stop there and wave at russia (laughs)
0: I love that. I love it. Yeah, you'll probably end up in ADAC. That was a major staging uh, base for both the Army and the Navy. And yes, there are still still things there that uh, are part of World War II. Uh, And if you go further out as well, um, you know, it's one of those things I I recommend a lot of people read about those those battles uh, during World War II because they were they were tough, uh, brutal in the conditions that they the gentlemen were or the men were fighting in were pretty extreme. So uh, looking forward to hearing about that trip. And uh, I'm I'm kind of excited for you. Thank you. Thank you. So this has been great. Thank you for taking time with us. Uh, The book uh, that Jeremiah has written is Diving Into Secured Access Service Edge, a Technical Leadership Guide for Achieving Success in the SASE at Market Speed. So um, excellent book. Recommend it. I think it's available on Kindle and uh, many other. uh, Have you have it? Is it available internationally as well now?
1: Yeah, uh, it's at least 10 countries. uh, And I think we've got uh, close to 40 companies uh, representing the book right now around the world. And then we'll be doing the Audible format here pretty soon.
2: Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you so
1: much. I appreciate it, guys.